Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, as we, we've gathered to celebrate the, the resurrection of Jesus our Lord, I'm reminded even in, in the things that, that Steve has said of how much Easter has become an American tradition, and really even an international tradition, but certainly in America, it is, it's one of the two days of the year when church buildings typically uh, find their numbers growing, setting up extra seats, welcoming people in who will venture out on, on that one day along with Christmas Day with no real sense of what they're doing or why it matters or, or what they believe. I pray that it is not so with us. Father, I pray that the easy casualness of, of this day for so many and even the busyness of of plans and preparations and, and dinners and activities that we would not fall prey to that. I pray that you will, in this time, give us a fresh, a renewed, a glorious vision of our resurrected Savior. We have read of that momentous event already today. We have sung hymns of praise and exultation that Christ is risen. And Father, if we are sharers in him, if we can rightly take the name Christian, then we share a profound an all-embracing relation to his resurrection. I pray, Father, that you will lead and direct my thoughts, my words, that you will enable me to convey the burden of my own heart and that you will cause that burden to speak truthfully to the truth as it is in Christ, and that each one here would be ministered to according to his need, according to his faith, for the sake of his joy, for the sake of his increasing faith and faithfulness. So, Father, we commit this time to you. Please, by your Spirit, attend to it that Jesus would be exalted, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.
Well, I'd like to begin just by asking you all, what do you think of the resurrection? What role does it play in your faith? What role does it play in your life? If someone were to ask you about the resurrection of Jesus, what would you have to say about that? Why does it matter? What do you think about that? Does it matter at all? One man has, has said, and, and it's stuck in my mind uh, for various reasons, that the church from the very beginning was a resurrection movement. It had its origin, it had its substance, it had its orientation, it had its mission, it had its destiny in this thing that we call resurrection. And if that's true, and I believe it is, and I think the scriptures testify to it, if that's true, then the authenticity of our lives, the faithfulness of our lives as Christians, is grounded in our relationship to this reality of resurrection, our conformity to the truth of resurrection. Not maybe as we think it is, maybe not as we perceive it to be, but as it is true in Jesus the Messiah. And therefore, in and through him, true for us as well. Resurrection is one of those words within the Christian vernacular that we all know, that we all have some sense of. It's part of our Christianese but I wonder how much we really understand about it, what we really think it's all about, how it pertains to us. I would argue that for many Christians, uh, we, we think about resurrection, obviously, on Easter. It's a, it's a time when we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Uh, but beyond that, it probably doesn't enter into our thinking much other than as a way to substantiate the fact of the atonement or as... Uh, a kind of litmus test of Christian orthodoxy. To be Christians, we've got to believe Jesus was actually raised from the dead. It's those liberals, those apostates who don't believe in the bodily resurrection. But how much does resurrection really play into our daily lives, the way we think, who we are, the way we live out our lives in Christ? Even perhaps most importantly, as I've thought about this, the way that we understand this issue of sanctification, what it is to progress in our faith in Christ, what it is to live a faithful Christian life, how much does resurrection play into that thinking and even that labor? Well, I want us to step back and and put this whole idea of resurrection into what I think is its proper context. And it begins by recognizing, which I don't think this is news to any of us, that Jesus came into the world at a certain time in the context of a certain people, a certain perspective. John says he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And Jesus later said, I came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
Jesus entered into Israel at a certain time in its history, and he came specifically to fulfill Israel's scriptures that had Israel at the very center. And so when we consider this idea of resurrection as the very marrow of the early Christian faith, the very marrow of what the Christians understood about who they were, their relationship to Jesus, what it meant for them to be uh, followers of his, they had a certain backdrop, they had a certain perspective for that sense of the meaning of his resurrection. And part of the problem that we have is not only are we 2,000 years removed from that, but we're also vastly removed, sadly, as Christians, very often from the Israelite Old Testament backdrop into which Jesus entered and through which his life and his death and his resurrection found their meaning. There were, we talk about the period leading up to the coming of Jesus as the second temple period, and basically that's the period that runs from the rebuilding of the temple completed around 516 BC up until the destruction of that temple in 70 AD. So that period that of centuries is what we call the second temple period. And it was into that period in Israel's history that Jesus came into the world. And we may say, well, that's just a historical backdrop. It doesn't really mean anything. Well, if Paul is correct that when the fullness of the time came, God was pleased to bring forth his son... The timing even of Jesus' entrance into the world was very much uh, orchestrated by God. It wasn't arbitrary. So that second temple period was very important in laying the foundation for the coming of the Messiah. The lens through which he would be understood and interpreted. And even Jewish scholars will recognize at least six primary features of that period. And and again, this won't be news to most of us, at least, as we've spent so much time walking through uh, over the years uh, Israel's life and, and history. But six key things that really became focal points in that time. The first was the issue of the monarchy. We know that David's throne and kingdom, even David's dynastic house, were destroyed with the Babylonian captivity. And Jesus was born into a time where there was the growing and and expectant hope, as God had promised to David, of the restoring of that house and throne and kingdom. The second temple period was marked by the absence of the monarchy, the absence of a king in Israel, and Israel under the domination of Gentile powers. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, then the Seleucids, first the Ptolemies, then the Seleucids, and ultimately Rome itself. That was a key feature of that period. The second feature of that period was this issue of temple. God had departed from the temple before it was destroyed. And yes, they rebuilt it under Zerubbabel, like I said, completed about 516 BC. 
But what was remarkable in that second temple period is that Yahweh had not returned to inhabit his temple. We know Exodus ends with what? As soon as the tabernacle is finished, the glory of God descends and fills the house. And when Solomon builds the temple, presides over it, you see this glorious filling of Yahweh, Yahweh's presence filling the temple. The Shekinah, the Shekinah, the glory cloud of God that hovered between the wings of the cherubim in the Holy of Holies. And before Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians, the Lord departed from his temple. You read about that in Ezekiel. But with the promise that he would return. And what was remarkable through all of those centuries of the second temple period is that there was no Shekinah in the Holy of Holies. The Lord had not returned. You see that even in the, the, the post-exile prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, the promise that Yahweh will yet return to his temple. So monarchy, temple. The third thing was exile or diaspora. The Jews scattered throughout the Middle East. First, you know, in the northern kingdom at the hands of the um, um, Assyrians, and then later from uh, the Babylonians, the southern kingdom of Judah, the remnant of David's house and kingdom. Exile. And while many people think that, well, the exile ended when uh, Cyrus allowed the Jews to return and start rebuilding the temple, uh, that didn't end the exile. Because what brought exile was the judgment of God against the unfaithfulness of the covenant nation. He drove them away. He departed. He drove them away. And that exile would not end until Yahweh returned and until there was the renewing of the covenant and the forgiveness of the violation of the nation. So, yes, some Jews were in the land, but... The diaspora, the, the, the dispersion of Jews throughout a wider area, they weren't all returned to Judea or Palestine. That testified to the fact that exile continued. Fourthly, and, and really a building on that, is the fact of division. The division in the house of Israel that had begun with David and God bringing the sword against David's house and ultimately the forming of two kingdoms, the northern ten tribes breaking off from the southern two tribes. That division continued through the second temple period. And it began to manifest itself in the formation of various uh, disparate and even antagonistic sects within Judaism, the Essenes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. All of that arose during that second temple period. So monarchy, temple, exile, division, hostility within the house of Israel. And fifthly, something we don't tend to think of, but it was during that period that the scriptures, Israel's scriptures, Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketavim, law, prophets, and writings were brought together in written form. By the time Jesus is born, Israel has its scriptures in a codified written form. That occurred during the Second Temple period. And flowing out of that, sixthly and lastly, is the fact that having a written corpus of Scripture 
particularly in, in the sense of, of the prophets and the writings, there was this um, orientation, a greater orientation within Israel, within the sectarianism of Israel towards inquiry, investigation, study, working with the scriptures, trying to know the scriptures better, trying to plumb them, trying to understand their message. And so increasingly, Israel's theology, Israel's perspective became more apocalyptic. Not in the sense of some, you know, global conflagration of, you know, nuclear war or something, but apocalyptic in the sense of apocalypsis, a revealing, a disclosing. There was an increasing anticipation and sense of God's promise that he would arise and he would fulfill the promise of the Davidic house and kingdom, that he would restore his presence to his temple, that he would end Israel's exile by bringing forgiveness of sin and regathering his people back and healing the division among them. I mean, we saw all of this in Zechariah, right? But this is throughout the prophets. This is throughout Israel's scriptures. And as they began to pour more thoroughly over the scriptures, they began to have a greater sense of all of these issues and how God was going to resolve all of that in connection with his promise to return. And sitting at the very center of that was this messianism or this promise of a Messiah, the son of David who would come, who would purge the temple, and through whom Yahweh would restore his own dwelling in in that temple. And the one who would stand as the banner and gather the sons of Israel back to him, end the exile, through him would come forgiveness of sin, renewing of the covenant, the restoring of the covenant house, the reconciling of Israel and Judah, and ultimately through Israel and Judah, the gathering in of the nations of the earth. This is Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11. We saw this throughout Zechariah. So it was in the second temple period that Israel began to do serious business with the future. And they began to think about their plight as their historical plight and their relationship with God through the lens of what he would do and how he would do it and how this was all bound up in this messianic figure who was to come. So Israel's view of resurrection, which is an Old Testament concept, here's the point of all of what I've said, Israel's concern and its understanding of resurrection derived from its grappling with these issues that I've been speaking about. Liberation, kingship, renewal, justice, Yahweh's return to Zion, the establishing of his kingdom. That's the world and the expectation into which Jesus was born. And one of the things historically that was also present is beginning at least with the Maccabees, uh, a century and a half before Jesus was born, were these events and these movements within Israel that began to build an expectation in the people that maybe the time of the Messiah is near. 
There were those who believed that Judas Maccabeus was the Messiah when he rose up against the Assyrians. And that's what Hanukkah is all about, right? Cleansed the temple, reestablished the worship in the temple, drove out the Syrians under Antiochus Epiphanes, and established ultimately the Hasmonean dynasty that continued up till the Romans. But there was a greater sense of messianism, a Messiah who would come. And even Judas, uh, the, um, Judas the Galilean, about the time of Jesus' birth, was a Messiah figure. Now, the Romans crushed him, but nonetheless, he was a man who many believed to be the Messiah, who would rise up and who would do this work of liberation, purging, dealing with the oppressor so that Yahweh would return. That's the world into which Jesus was born, and that's the lens through which people were interpreting him and what they saw in him. And certainly his resurrection. This was the doctrine of the Cholam Haba, the age to come, associated with the Messiah and this work. One scholar has put it this way, he says, the resurrection of the dead was both a symbol for the coming of the new age, the Cholam Haba, and itself taken literally one central element in that package of the new age. For when Yahweh restored the fortunes of his people, then of course Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, together with all God's people, down to and including the martyrs who had died in the cause would be re-embodied, raised to new life in God's new world. Where Second Temple Jews believed in resurrection, not all did, but where there was a belief in resurrection, that belief concerned on the one hand the re-embodiment of formerly dead human beings, but on the other the inauguration of the new age, the new covenant, in which all the righteous dead would be raised together. That was the Jewish view of resurrection when Jesus came into the world. Why do I say all of that? You say, well, that was Israel. Who cares what they thought? They had their own view about things. Why does that matter? Because it was in the context of fulfilling that expectation derived from their own history and circumstance in the scriptures that Jesus' resurrection makes sense, that we can really understand what it was all about. If we divorce his death and resurrection from the Israelite history recorded in the scriptures, then we can no longer uphold what Jesus himself said, which is that all the law, the prophets, and the writings testify of me, and I came to fulfill the scriptures. So the early Christians then, who were all Jews or proselytes to Judaism... This was the lens through which they understood the Messiah and his resurrection and even their allegiance to him. The early Christians proclaimed Jesus as Israel's Messiah and as the one who inaugurated God's promised kingdom, the kingdom promised in the scriptures. But they did so with their Jewish notions and their Jewish expectations, their sense of what, how that would all play out, they proclaimed him and they followed him in a way in which they had to rework all of those ideas around him. You've heard me say so many times, Jesus came exactly as God promised, but not 
exactly as he was expected. All that he was and did perfectly fulfilled God's purposes revealed in the scriptures, but it didn't meet the expectation of the the people of Israel in terms of what they thought these things were going to look, look like. Well, I didn't know Steve was going to bring in this theme of hope today, but maybe that means that the Lord was in our preparation this week because that's exactly how I want to treat this. I, I've titled this Living in the Hope of, Re- of Resurrection. Living in the Hope of Resurrection. Paul talked about being on trial for the hope of resurrection. It sits again at the very center of this idea of what it means to be Christians. And I want to treat this under two parts. Hope as grounded in Jesus' resurrection and then hope as directed towards our own resurrection. Grounded in Jesus' resurrection, directed towards our own resurrection. And when we consider Jesus' resurrection, we can go in a lot of different directions. But I want to focus on two key things, which again were at the heart of God's promise concerning this renewal that he would bring in the last day. There were two aspects to that. And and if you think back even with the, the things that Steve read, certainly from Isaiah, you see these two things. This was woven throughout the prophets, from the time of the destruction of David's house and kingdom, the promise of God was centered in these two dimensions or aspects of renewal. One was recovery and restoration of the creation itself. The second was the recovery and restoration of justice or rightness. That truth would at last fully forever be set in place. Renewal of the creation, but also the restoration of righteousness or rightness or truth. So the first dimension then, and it's, it's around those two things that I want to talk about Jesus' own resurrection. The first is that his resurrection represents this resurrection of new man. So many people, I mean, this was the problem that the Corinthians wrestled with, is how can a dead body be reanimated? What is this, like Frankenstein or something, where you shoot some electricity into a dead corpse and it comes back to life? And Paul says that's not how it works. The resurrection of the dead is not the reanimation of a dead corpse. It is the bringing forth of a transformed physicality. Jesus was resurrected to be who recognized for who he was. You could touch him, you could handle him, you could see the the wounds, put your hand in my side. And yet there was something different about him, and the disciples recognized that. They knew it was him, but they were puzzled. And they were afraid to ask him, what's going on here? There was a transformed physicality. It wasn't just the reanimation of a corpse. The resurrection of Jesus represents the resurrection of new man. 
And specifically, the early Christians as Jews had come to realize that God's promise of resurrection, remember, their expectation was that at the end of the age, God would raise up all of faithful Israel together with the Messiah and in that way inaugurate the Chalam Haba, the age to come. Resurrection would be the great beginning event of that. And they had come to recognize that Jesus' resurrection represented the fulfillment of God's promise of the resurrection of faithful Israel. In other words, Jesus' resurrection represented the resurrection of Israel in the sense that he embodied Israel in himself. This is Isaiah 49, right? If Israel is son, servant, witness, disciple, Jesus embodies Israel as the truth of that, the seed of Abraham, the one who is truly son, servant, witness, disciple. Jesus embodied Israel. You see it in his testing. You see it in his solidarity with the nation. You see it in his death. His death is that. And his resurrection is the fulfillment of the promise of God restoring Israel. He becomes the beginning of that. But if Jesus' resurrection is the, is, uh, amounts to Israel's renewal if he embodied in himself the substance of Israel's renewal, then his resurrection also implicated Gentile renewal. Why? Because the prophets had made it clear that when God, through the Messiah, made Israel become Israel indeed, then at last Israel would fulfill its calling on behalf of the world. A faithful Israel would now be Son of God, through whom all the nations of the earth would be gathered in. Israel's resurrection or its restoration meant the ingathering of the the nations. That's how Paul preached when he went out. The God who had let the Gentiles go their own way, now in the Messiah, by forming a new Israel in him, now the good news is going out to all the nations. That was the way in which Paul dealt with that. You look at his defense before Agrippa in the book of Acts, and he says this. He's he's again explaining how he came to be who he is. He's on trial. He's being held in custody. First, remember, he appeared before Felix, then Festus, now Agrippa. Acts 26. He says, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time previously, if they're willing to testify and admit that, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you if God raises the dead? This is what, in a sense, the scriptures had pointed to all along. And so then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus the Nazarene perceiving him as a false Messiah who was leading the people away from Yahweh and his Torah. 
This is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints, the followers of Jesus in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to force them to blaspheme, to, re, to renounce Jesus as Messiah. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. And while engaged in that way, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we'd all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise, stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to things in which I will appear to you. Delivering you from the Jews and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, the eyes of the Gentiles, Jews also, but Gentiles, that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been set apart by faith in me. My point is is that when Paul came to recognize that Israel was being renewed in the Messiah, that meant that the Gentile mission was beginning. This wasn't something of saying, well, we need to get as many people into the churches as we can, so let's go start you know, uh, trying to get people saved from all these other nations or whatever. Paul recognized that if Jesus is the Messiah, if he is raised from the dead, if he has reconstituted Israel in himself, then now the time has come in which God will do his work of gathering in all the nations to himself, as the prophet said. That's why Paul can point to Hosea 1 and 2 to prove his argument that from all time, but certainly throughout Israel's history, God had been saying the same thing, his intent to save the Gentiles. He points to Hosea 1 and 2, which have nothing to do with the Gentiles. But talk about when God will bring Israel and Judah together in the Messiah. And Paul can point to that and see there. I've proven my thesis concerning the Gentiles. Why? Because the prophets collectively say when God does that for Israel, it will mean the ingathering of the nations. So Jesus' resurrection then has implications for the Gentiles as well in the very nature of the case. The hope of resurrection that faithful Israelites hoped in, that they longed for, had become yes and amen in the Messiah. But again, a rethinking of that. Rather than being raised alongside the Messiah, which they expected, they were raised by sharing in his resurrection. They were not raised alongside him, but raised by being in him. Just as he had taken the nation's unfaithfulness and covenant violation upon himself. But that same dynamic applied to the Gentiles. These are all the things that they're working through as they're understanding the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection. 
Paul came to understand that Jesus' death and resurrection as the Son of Man concerned the entire human race. We get bogged down in issues of election and who's going to be saved and who isn't and all these things. And it it moves us aside from, from how the scripture really is concerned about these things. Jesus' death condemned and put to death human existence that we are all a part in. If he took up Israel's unfaithfulness, its covenant violation, he also took that up in himself on behalf of the whole world. As the son of Adam, he bore the Adamic transgression, the Adamic alienation. He condemned it in himself. He put it to death in himself. That's what Paul means when he says that taking, coming and being found in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering, he condemned sin in his own flesh. If sin represents this principle of human violation of essential relatedness to God, Jesus bore that in himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He put death to death in himself. And in that way, you see that his resurrection is the resurrection of God's new Adam. 1 Corinthians 15. As a son of Adam, he put, if you will, Adamic man to death. In order that by his resurrection, he becomes the fountainhead of a new humanity as the last Adam. That's the sense in, again, these are things the early church was working through. That's the sense in which Jesus' death is the death of every human being. It's the sense in which his resurrection is the true substance of life for every human being. Doesn't mean every human being gets saved. But it means that life for every human being who finds it is in the Messiah. Again, Paul talking about his gospel to the Corinthians, he says... Let me see where I want to pick this up. I'll pick this up in verse 14 of chapter 5. He says, The love of Christ constrains us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so from now on, this is a new reality that's come in Messiah. The death The crucifixion, the condemnation of humanness, as all of us have known it, every human being has ever known it, was condemned and put to death in the Messiah. And what came out on Sunday morning was a new human being who is the fountainhead of a new human race. And so Paul says, because of that, we no longer recognize any man according to the flesh. That pattern of humanness has been condemned. It's been crucified. And even though we knew Christ in that way, according to the flesh, we do so no longer. What we understand is that if any man is in Christ, new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. All these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
What is that ministry of reconciliation? That God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us that good news of reconciliation. And so as ambassadors for Christ, as if God himself is entreating through us, we beg men on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's how Paul's own thinking was transformed in terms of resurrection. So the first issue then, remember this idea of of when God arose and did this mighty work, it would first bring restoration of creation. You see that in substance in Jesus himself, the beginning of God's new creation. The second thing is the recovery of justice, rightness. The doing away with corruption, falseness, injustice, all of the things that govern this world. So the second piece of this then is Jesus' resurrection as new Lord. The resurrection of Jesus speaks to the fact that he is Lord of all. If the resurrection... In the Jewish understanding, if the resurrection of the righteous, God's faithful people, if the resurrection of the righteous would usher in the holam haba, then that new coming age would see God's kingdom of justice and truth and rightness and beauty established once and for all everlastingly. The glory of God covering the earth as the waters cover the seas. God becoming king of all the earth. That's the language of the prophets, right? Presided over by Messiah and his faithful. That was the Jewish conception of how justice would be restored. Well, again, those ideas had to be rethought in terms of Jesus and the resurrection. Why? Because that kingdom is inaugurated in the midst of a world that is still hostile to God. The Jews saw all of this coming at the end in a cataclysm when when Yahweh established his kingdom, then there would be the doing away of everything that's false, everything that's unjust, everything that's untrue, everything that contradicts God and his truth and his love and his beauty. And yet here is Jesus being raised seemingly in the middle of the age and seemingly all alone and seemingly the world continues on as it always has been. How do they understand God's faithfulness to his promise in the light of that? Well, again, uh, a couple things I want to bring out about this is that first of all, this inauguration of a new kingdom is in the context of this already, but not yet. This kingdom has been put in place, and yet we do not see all things in subjection to God in the way that the the Jews expected, in the way that the scriptures speak. But my point at this point is to say that if Jesus' resurrection represents the establishing of a new Lord presiding over a new kingdom, then there is a profound political dimension to the resurrection. Not necessarily political in the way we think about it. Why do I even mention that? Because for many Christians, we view 
spirituality or faith in Jesus or whatever as entirely separate from, from life in this world. In fact, we're kind of trying to hang on and hide until we can go off to heaven, right? That wasn't the Jewish conception of what God's kingdom would be. It would be the Lord's reign filling the earth. And the early Christians understood that that had now, in substance, occurred with the resurrection and enthronement of Jesus. That's why you hear me say all the time, the gospel message, preaching the gospel, got Paul in trouble, not because he was telling people how they can go to heaven when they die, but because he was saying there is a true Lord and a true king whose lordship is uncompromised and unqualified. Remember what Jesus said even to his own disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The reason Paul and the early Christians were in prison is because they said there is another Lord who is supreme, to whom the lords and kings of the world are accountable. That's how the Thessalonians Thessalonian Jews brought their charges against Paul and his companions is that they're preaching another king other than Caesar. They're insurrectionists. They're treasonous. They're preaching another lord, another king. Yahweh's triumph, kingdom, and reign over all the earth was to come in connection with the Messiah. That had happened, but again, not as expected. Yahweh was going to come and he was going to triumph over everything that opposed him and conquer all of the forces, all of the powers that opposed and resisted him. And in that way, he would set his Messiah on the throne. Well, how did Israel understand that? Certainly through the Second Temple period where they're under Gentile domination. They saw that as Messiah is going to come and raise an army and overthrow Gentile domination. And they kept doing that even after Jesus was crucified and ascended. The last messianic claimant was Bar Kokhba in the 130s AD. And after the Romans crushed him, that was the end. There was no more messianic claimants to the throne of Israel. But that's how they thought it was going to happen. What they discovered, and one of the huge things they had to work through, was that the way in which God exercised his power in destroying that which opposed him in order to set his Messiah on the throne was through the supreme act of self-giving at Calvary. Think of the placard over Jesus' head, this is the king of the Jews. And the ruler said, take that down. Take that down. I've said it so many times, but it's important that we recognize they had no category for a dead Messiah. Messiah was going to triumph. How can he triumph when he's dead? And worse yet, he's supposed to conquer the Romans and overthrow them. How can he die at the hands of the Romans? Where's the triumph in that? And yet the great irony was that precisely the way in which God was becoming king and destroying the enmity and enemies that were raised up against him in his truth and his kingdom was through the death of the Messiah himself, who himself is Yahweh returned to Zion. 
The death of the Messiah is in a very real way God's own self-giving. When Pilate and Jesus stood at a loggerhead and what is kingdom? Who's a king? What does kingship look like? Are you a king? Yes, but my kingdom is not of this world. It, It doesn't derive from this world. It's of a different sort. And Pilate delivers him. Don't you know I have authority to crucify you? I have authority to release you. And Jesus said, you have no authority over me. When Pilate wields his power in giving Jesus over to death, it's actually Jesus' victory. Because it's in that that you see the triumphal power of God. In the horrific event of Calvary and its triumph. God had triumphed to establish his kingdom through self-giving and begun to assume his reign through the enthroned Messiah, the one who is both the embodiment of Yahweh's own person and sovereign rule, but also the truth of God's promise of man as the Lord through whom he exercises and administers his rule. The Christians in the early period had to grapple with how Yahweh accomplishes his global reign through the man that he has raised from the dead. And how does that work in the context of seeming powerlessness and, and you know, um, subjugation to Rome and to, uh, you know, ruling powers? How can this triumph exist? They had to figure out that Jesus' kingship and kingdom are of a different sort. It doesn't look like what we think it is. See, even so often as Christians, we take our understanding of lordship and power and dominion and we impose it on God. He's the guy sitting up in heaven holding the scepter, uh, moving the chess pieces around and telling everybody what to do because he's in charge. That's how we understand lordship. That's how we understand power. Jesus said, you understand power in this world to his disciples. You know the lords of the Gentiles. They call themselves benefactors, but they lord it over you. It's not to be that way with you because that's not the nature of my father's kingdom. The one who is the least is the greatest. And the one who would be the master must be the servant. And what does he do in in explaining to them his own lordship as Messiah? He washes their feet. You call me Lord. You call me Messiah, King, Teacher, Rabbi, and I am that. But I am not among you as one who is served, but as one who serves. They had to rethink this whole thing of how God was to become and had become king in Israel and lord over the world through a crucified and resurrected Messiah. What Paul calls foolishness to the Greeks and scandalous to the Jews. A crucified Jew is the lord of the world? Really? That's not how we understand lordship. But again, death has always been the primary and the most fearsome instrument of tyranny. And by destroying death by his own death, he took that weapon away. The rulers have no more ultimate power. They have no more ultimate power. 
Listen to how Paul puts it to Timothy when he tries to encourage him. Think about these words in the context of what I've been talking about. He says to him, he says, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner. I'm in prison. I'm being abused. Where's the victory in that? Where's the triumph in that? Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord even as that seen in me as his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the good news according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to what we have done, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Now, which has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus, the Messiah, who abolished death, and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Don't be timid. When Jesus appeared to John on the Isle of Patmos, he said, I am what? The one who holds the keys of death and the grave. I have overcome. I was dead and I am alive forevermore. You see, the enemies that were to be destroyed by God's return and conquest were not the enemies of Roman imperial power or Assyrian power or Seleucid power or Ptolemaic power or whatever. It was the power of sin and death and condemnation. Jesus' resurrection has stripped those powers of their power, the great weapon of their tyranny. So his resurrection dealt with this thing of creational restoration and then secondly, the restoration of justice, rightness in the world. The second piece of this is our hope directed towards our own personal or towards this idea of personal resurrection. And that's really a subset of this creational idea. But remember again, and I'm gonna go through this very quickly, the Jewish hope was a general resurrection at the end of the age, a resurrection of all of God's righteous, the faithful. Them together with the Messiah, they would be raised up. But they find now Jesus, the faithful Israelite, being raised in what seems to be the middle of the age and all alone. And yet they are made to understand that his resurrection is a first fruits. It's the beginning. And life is flowing out of that. And so while it may seem on the one hand that this principle of a general resurrection at the end of the age, all of God's righteous being raised simultaneously together with the Messiah, that promise may seem to have not been fulfilled, but in fact it was. Because the death and resurrection of Jesus did mark the end of the age, the beginning of a new creation. And so also, all of God's righteous are raised together with him. Not alongside him, but as being raised up in him. 
sharing in his resurrection and therefore inhabiting the heavenly realm that he inhabits. When you were dead in trespasses and sins, God made you alive together with Christ. He raised us up in him and seated us in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, right? Raised up already in Christ. The difference is that Jesus' resurrection was a single event. For us, for all others, it's a double event. Renewal of the inner man, now resurrection of the body at the end. Romans 8. Right? But the reality of present resurrection raised up in Christ Jesus, what Paul told the Corinthians, the inner man being renewed day by day, though the outer man is perishing. That renewal of the inner man is the promise of the resurrection to come. So when we talk about the hope of future resurrection, that hope has its basis and its legitimacy in the fact of present resurrection. In other words, if we are not already sharers in Jesus' resurrection in terms of the enlivening, the resurrection of the inner man, we have no place to have any hope for a future resurrection. Because the future resurrection is just the fullness of the resurrection that we already share in. And that future resurrection of the body will be attended with the, with the renewal of the whole physical creation. Again, Romans 8. The creation's groaning, subjected to futility by God's own purpose under the curse, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God that it would then enjoy its own share in this redemption in the Messiah. The new heavens and the new earth as the scripture speaks, as Isaiah speaks. So we only, the, the, the great Christian hope is resurrection, but it's only true, that hope only has a basis in legitimacy if we are already partakers in Jesus' resurrection. So what's the point of that? Why does that matter? And with this, I'm, I'm done. This is the practical part of it, and I've called this fulfilling the obligation of resurrection. Okay, if all these things are true, if this is how we're to understand resurrection, if this is what our relationship with resurrection is, what does this mean in terms of our practice? Well, there are generally two ways, in our culture at least, in which Christians understand this idea of faithfulness and Christian mission, what it is to live a faithful Christian life and be about the work that God would have us to do. The one side of it is that we live into and and are faithful with our place in God's kingdom when we work for, for lack of a better way to put it, social justice, social equity, social reform. This is what lies behind liberation theology and and Christians needing to make the world a better place. That's what it looks like to be faithful. Now, often we say, well, those are the liberals. They're all about that kind of stuff. We don't care about that. But the other side of it, and this is more common, certainly you see this more in what we would call conservative Christianity, is that being about the life and the work that God calls us to looks like working on our own personal preparation to go to heaven and soul winning. 
We should be laboring to win souls and we should be laboring towards our own sanctification, right? The first is a very this-worldly orientation, making the world a better place. And we mock that and we scoff at that and we say, forget it, it's all going to burn up, you know. Our goal is just to, to get off of this planet and go off to heaven. So what this is about is getting our souls ready to go to heaven and on top of that, trying to win as many souls to go off to heaven with us as we can. The first of those views is very this-worldly. The second is very other-worldly. But both of those reflect very much the Enlightenment tradition that we are party to. And I'm not going to belabor all of that. But just like Jews understood Jesus and, and their relationship to him within their own context, we're the same way. But we're like the fish in water that doesn't know he's wet. The Enlightenment established a a two-story view of reality. There's the material realm and there's the spiritual realm. And as it worked its way even into America, that's why a lot of the, or some of the founding fathers at least, were what we would call deists. They believed that God created the world, he's out there somewhere, and then the world runs according to the laws and the principles that he put in place. And what came out of that is a Christian understanding. Uh, it's called uh, fideism, which is faith. I, faith versus reason. That's where we are in our culture. You can believe these things or you can trust your brain. You can trust science. There's the material world that we can investigate empirically. And then there's this spiritual realm that we appropriate by faith. So we're about this thing of, of spirituality and, and, you know, thinking about heaven and going off to heaven. And for the most part, the world can go to hell in a handbasket because God's just going to burn it up anyway. That's where a lot of Christians are. We're still very much dualist, enlightenment people. We're all about the spiritual things, but we don't see how they in any way impact the world. And we teach our kids, yeah, well, you know, when you're in science class, still hold to, you know, creation versus evolution or whatever, even though what, you know, it's this science versus faith, reason versus faith dynamic that is so much a part of our culture. But if the Christian life is grounded in and understood in terms of resurrection, then we have to understand that it's not about saying, okay, are we about social action? Are we about making the world a better place? Or are we about winning souls to go off to heaven? What we're about is recognizing that the gospel of the kingdom has at the heart of it the reality of a new creation, a new kind of human existence a new kind of human existence defined by Jesus, a new kind of kingdom defined by Jesus' lordship, a new way of being human, a new way of understanding and doing power. And so while we're not social justice warriors and we're not soul winners, we very much are concerned with justice in the world and we're very much concerned with the renewal of human beings. And maybe you have to think about that a little bit. 
But we're called, what the resurrection means for us is we are called to be fellow laborers with Jesus, working in advancing his kingdom, not our kingdom, not the world's kingdom, not our notions of kingdom, but his kingdom, which he said doesn't look like any kingdom in this world. It's of a different sort. He's not saying it doesn't pertain to this world. He's saying it doesn't originate in this world. It doesn't look like the kingdoms of this world. We labor and goal with the uh, we labor towards the goal that Jesus Himself, when His disciples said, "Teach us to pray," He said, "Here's how you're to pray: Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as in heaven." That's not something for a future millennium. That's God's purpose now. That's God's purpose now. In substance, that was realized in the Messiah Himself, right? Heaven and earth coming together. Heaven and earth coming together in the Messiah. God's purpose is not to free up souls from bodies to fly off to heaven, but to fill the whole creation, bring heaven and earth together and fill the whole creation with his own life and love and mediate that presence and lordship through human beings who share in his life, who share in his nature. Resurrection is important for us to keep these ideas of kingdom and cross all together. And it also shows us how we fulfill our ethic and calling. Just a couple more statements. One person in saying, how did the early Christians present themselves? What did people see when they saw these weird people, these early Christians? What did the ancient world think of them? And he says, this is what they saw. They saw a monotheistic people, a follower of one God in a world that was very polytheistic. They saw people who were monotheistic, a worship-based people, scripture-shaped, new creational, egalitarian, multi-ethnic, philanthropic, outward-facing, ethically rigorous, politically subversive, fictive kinship group. That's what they saw. What's a fictive kinship group? It's a family that isn't tied together by blood. What they saw was a monotheistic, worship-based, scripture-shaped, new creational, egalitarian, multi-ethnic, philanthropic, outward-facing, ethically rigorous, politically subversive, fictive kinship group. And the point in mentioning that is that only that sort of community could give credibility to the message of a resurrected man who is the fountainhead, the beginning of a whole new created order. Only that sort of entirely unknown, never seen before human community in the world could testify to the truth of the meaning of the resurrection. A new order of things presided over by one who is the Lord of all. This is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Have them be one as we are one that the world would know that you sent me. Saints, that's what it means that the church is a resurrection movement. The the Christian life is the life of resurrection. It's not something that's just out there in the future. And I know Christians who don't even believe in the resurrection. Not Jesus's, but ours. For so many Christians, the goal of everything is my spirit going off to heaven. 
full stop. It's a pagan idea, and it's an enlightenment idea. It's not a Christian idea. The Christian life isn't religious, it isn't spiritual, it's eschatological. We are those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And we have entered into this new world in the Messiah, and we are testifiers of that new world by the way we think, by the way we live. And we bear witness to the hope that is yet to come. Even as we come to the table, we celebrate the Lord's death until he comes, right? We are people of the new creation. And that reveals even what our mission is. Our mission is not an activity. It's not passing out tracts. It's not winning do- ringing doorbells. It's not trying to do soul winning. And I'm not saying there's no kind of dimension of evangelism. But, but our mission isn't social action or soul winning. It's a new human existence that testifies of God's triumph and goal in the Messiah. It's a new way of living in which every aspect of our life is transformed by the reality of resurrection. And it's through that way of being human that we interact with the world, bearing the fragrance of Christ in every place. So for our contemplation for the table, I want to, um, not probably unsurprisingly, just read something that I want us to think about as we meditate coming to the table, this is Paul speaking to the Corinthians again in chapter 15, where he deals with the issue of resurrection as a present reality, but also in terms of a future hope. Steve read from this a little bit earlier. Paul says again that if Christ is not raised, if there is, if there is no resurrection, Christ is not raised. If he is not raised, then there's nothing. We're still in our sins, and we're most to be pitied of all men because we believe something that is false. But he says, now where do I pick this up? He says, as it is with the earthy, so it is with those who are earthy. As with the heavenly, so the heavenly. As we have borne the image of the earthly, the natural man, we shall also in the resurrection of our bodies fully bear the image of the heavenly. I say this to you, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, the trump will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. He's talking about the bodily resurrection, but again, presupposing the present resurrection. This perishable must put on the imperishable. Mortal must put on immortality. And when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and the mortal, the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory, fully, finally. He must reign till all enemies are under his feet. Mortality is the last enemy. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the point. Therefore, 
Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. If we are indeed already raised up in the Messiah, that needs to define the lives that we live. We need to be resurrection people. And we live in the hope of the day when resurrection is finally consummated for not just human beings, but the whole creation. This is so much more glorious than just behaving properly and reading our Bible and going to church and waiting to go to heaven when we die. This is so much more glorious. And it does establish our responsibility. It establishes our calling. The church is a resurrection movement. It's not just something we think about on Easter. It's who we are. Father, as we come now to the table, we celebrate not just the death of of Jesus, but we celebrate his resurrection implicit in the truth that we look forward as much as we look back. that the fullness of his own resurrection life is appointed for us as well. Because even now, the earnest of the Spirit is the guarantee, the arabon of the resurrection to come. And not just us, but the whole creation. Father, give us a new and a more glorious vision that we would be faithful stewards of this world. It's easy if we think that your purpose is just to burn up this planet and go do something else somewhere else. It's easy for us to make light and despise our lives in this world. But your purpose is that this world, just as human beings, this world, this planet, this creation, this earth, is appointed for a renewal, deliverance from the curse and death and desolation, to become the place that you created it to be, the dwelling of God such that your glory will fill this earth and we will be stewards and servants of that glory. Father, may we be socially minded in that way. May we be environmentally minded in that way. May we be concerned about the present life in that way. And may we even be concerned about our own lives in this world in that way and what it means to truly live as followers, as disciples of the risen Messiah. I know there's a lot in this, but I pray that we would chew on it. I pray that we would be faithful with it. Don't let us push it away and go on to a a dinner afterwards and get on with our lives. But I pray that you would press these things upon us and that you would compel us by your spirit to do business with them. We would see Jesus. We would be faithful. We would be true followers of him. And even as we come to the table now, Father, I pray that we come with that sort of commitment, that sort of mindset, that sort of devotion. We ask these things for his sake and our sake together with him. Amen.